Keith is a partner at the professional practice group at Marks Panath LLP based in New York. I want to know, let everyone know who's a sports fan. I'm a bit of good luck. And the reason I say that is when I did a presentation in Denver on fair value a couple years ago, and I said, you know what? Um, I think Peyton Manning's coming to Denver. Peyton Manning came to Denver. There's a World Series game tonight. So if you guys win tonight and win the World Series, you might want to bring me back again, okay? So good luck when it comes to that stuff. Um, show of hands, how many people here are in public practice? Okay, very good, very good. Um, the reason I ask that is, you know, we're going to talk today about a topic, choosing the right accounting framework. And I've been in the CPA profession for over 20 years. I will tell you, I was in college when a certain Mr. Bonds could not throw out a certain Atlanta Brave. I went to school in Pittsburgh, by the way, you know, who was slower than my grandfather at home plate. So I've been doing this a while. Um, and it's interesting that we talk about the frameworks because, you know, we used to always just have one framework and we talk about U.S. GAAP. And I'm, I'm a big supporter of U.S. GAAP. U.S. GAAP has served the U.S. economy very well from the post-World War II era to probably the late 60s, 70s, you know, when we were mainly a products and tangible uh, production type of economy. But we've seen switches in what has happened in the economy. We're now an intellectual property company. We're a lot more entrepreneurial than we've ever been. And so the idea of, you know, do I have the right framework? And a little bit about my background. Um, started out, always have been new as a kid, probably in 10th grade I wanted to be a CPA. I thought it was a great profession, honorable profession, hardworking, all that. And that's what I tell my five-year-old today. That, that's a great profession, you know, that I fight the accounting wars. But yeah, I went from working on a lot of middle market companies, and I was basically a private company guy. And with the, in, uh, with the technology re revolution, it took me into a technology field and took me all over the world. I've lived uh, in both Europe. I've lived in Asia, I've seen different types of accounting, and now I'm you know, back in the U.S. Um, and it's interesting because I'm very involved in the AICPA through the Technical Issues Committee. I travel around and talk to a lot of people, and there's always this idea, well, is GAP right for me? And, you know, it would be interesting, like 10 years ago, I would tell you if someone would come, to, when I was at one of the large firm, someone would say, well, I want to do another basis of accounting. I want to do income tax basis of accounting. You would sort of look at them and think, well, what are they talking about? But today, I think because of where we've gotten with, with you know, not only our economies, but also in standard setting, if we all think back, I think you know, right now the FASB is very focused on private companies. They've expanded the board a couple of years ago from five to seven. They have more private, Daryl Buck is a private company guy. They will talk a little bit about the private company council. But prior to that, where was the FASB really focused? They were focused on this whole idea of let's do the global standards, international convergence. And so the private companies, our constituency, you know, serving the U.S. company was kind of, uh, you know, lost, I would say, or at least, you know, not, not the focal point for the FASB. I think we've really seen them come back. So a lot of people say, um, you know, what, what I need to think about when, what I want to use, what framework I want to use. You know, is, is it really, are we still in the days of Henry Ford where you can get any color Ford you want as long as it's black? I don't think we're there anymore. And it's interesting because I work in New York. Um, certainly, I'm in our PPG group. And we do a lot of real estate. We're a big real estate firm. I do a lot of income tax-based audits. 
which, you know, before, five years ago, I would say, well, why would you want to do income tax base? But in real estate, it's very important. People don't really care about GAAP. They care about, does my K-1 and what can I get from my financial statements? It's more important to do an income tax base audit. So, you know, we have a lot more choices today. We're going to talk about ACBOA. But, you know, I also deal a lot with entrepreneurial companies. And people always ask me questions about, hey, I, I'm, you know, I want to expand my credit line. I need, I need to get an audit. You know, what should I do? And I tell them, well, you, know, you might want to think about using income tax basis. If you're a small not-for-profit, you might want to think about cash basis. But you know, we have this, I think there's this mindset in the profession that if you want an audit, you need U.S. GAAP. And I think we need to really serve our clients to think, well, maybe they don't need U.S. GAAP. We need to think about, you know, and I think we've seen this through the private company decision-making framework. You know, who are the users of the financial statements? You know, if you're not using private equity, if you have no intent to go public, you probably could look to a different um, basis of accounting. And then also, you know, where does the company help to go? I deal with a lot of entrepreneurs and have my whole career where, you know, I think the American dream, we're told, is, hey, start a company, you know, tap the capital markets, make a million dollars, and go public. And I don't think everybody has that goal in life anymore. So, you know, where does the company want to go? So rather than telling them, you need GAP, and I will tell you, GAP is complex. As those of us who deal with it, it is not easy to deal with. And then resources. Most of you, I'm assuming here, how many of you deal with your clients are mainly private companies? Okay, and <laughs> when you talk about accounting resources, do they have enough accounting resources? Are they coming to you and say, you know, the FASB has this proposal out there and I really think they're off base. <laughs> no, no, they, ne they never do that. They, I don't know why. Um, you know, so the whole idea of resources, because really, you know, I'll be honest, um, the whole issue of independence, and I know, I know it's very a cornerstone of the profession, they're very important, but, you know, our clients rely on us really to keep them abreast of accounting, help them make choices. And I think the, peop the uh, private company council and their decision-making framework actually acknowledge the whole idea about resources. So I think the standard setters are getting much better in understanding how the standards are written and what the reality is for most companies. So with that, let's talk about the menu of choices. Because, you know, like I said, um, I kind of look like at all the the choices we have today in accounting, sort of like the advent of the microbrews. My wife and I, when we go out to dinner, she hates going to dinner and the lady will come over and she goes, what, what do you want to have to drink? And I'm, I'm, I'm a beer connoisseur, so I'm like, okay, what do you have on tap? So she has to list them three times and they finally pick one and my wife's like, you know, it was much better when they only had the major brands, at least for going to dinner. But I don't think that applies to where we're at today. If we want to talk about you know, the, the big choices of, of the menu here. Certainly we have U.S. GAAP. Tried and true, certainly I think it's changing. And I say it's changing because on that second bullet point there, the U.S. GAAP with the private uh, company council alternatives, how many here have followed what the PCC and the FASB have, have done in the last, let's say, year or so and have implemented them on their those some of those ASUs on their clients? One, two. I think it's, um, you know, so we see U.S. GAAP moving, you know, to a more private company friendly perspective. I think now that the idea of convergence is behind them, that you see there's a focus on private companies. Uh, the other menu we ha item we have here is IFRS. Is, you know, I've always, at, at my large firm and, 
and even in the last couple of years, have always dealt a lot with IFRS. I was on the IFRS for SMEs implementation group. How many here have clients that report under IFRS? None. At least nobody, nobody's raising their hands, which you know, is, is not surprising because why I think IFRS, you, know, you have people come to you, and I've had clients come to me and say, well, you know, maybe we ought to move to IFRS because it's more principles-based. And it's, in reality, I think that's a marketing ploy in some ways. You know, when you converge standards, you know, and you know, we have the U.S. standard and the IFRS standard, and they're basically the same, how can one be principles and one not? So um, while IFRS certainly, I think, has been very positive in other countries in the EU, and we have to remember that you know, full IFRS is really only written for the registrant community. It's not written for private companies. Then what the ISB did, and I give them great credit for this, probably in about, I guess it's about five years ago now, they came up with the IFRS for SMEs, and the SMEs is a small and medium-sized enterprise, and the idea was, well, why the ISB is addressing the registrant community, who is meeting the needs of the private companies? And I, w I was on this um, implementation group. There was probably seven Americans at the time on the group, I think we served a three-year term, and, and I think I had, you know, throughout my four years or three years on, on the council, I had two clients that had used this. And, they, and the reason they used it made sense. They had a foreign parent. They were owned. Um, but it really never got the traction that people thought it would. But it was very good that I think it planted the seed in the U.S. for there had to be some action. And then we're going to talk today a little bit, well, actually, we're going to talk a lot about the other comprehensive basis of accounting, otherwise known as ACBOA. And, you know, early in the days um, when people would tell me they wanted to do ACBOA, you know the old joke about ACBOA, you know, it's anything goes as long as you disclose. And I think it's kind of changed a little bit. And I think the AICPA, we're going to talk a lot today. How many here have heard about the AICPA uh, financial reporting framework for small and medium-sized enterprises? A lot of people. How many people here have implemented it? Okay, we're, we're, oh, one, one, one person. Once or more than once? Okay. And, okay. And you know, it's interesting because I think, we'll, we'll talk about this, but I think when the AICPA came out with this, because they were, came out with this project at the same time that the Financial Accounting Foundation and NASBA and the FASB were all looking to do the PCC. There was a little bit of negative, con um, I think, negative remarks in, 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 in the marketplace. You know, certainly NASBA wrote a letter to the AICPA. The RMA, which is the Risk Management Association, they basically do the training for all the credit risk people at the bank. They wrote a letter against it. But I think what you're seeing is the AICPA has certainly clarified what they want to do with it. People are coming to understand it. And it's actually becoming a, a pretty viable alternative under the ACBOA uh, space. So let's talk about a little bit now about the other menu we have here about, the, about ACBOA. And we've really seen a large migration to ACBOA. You know, ACBOA is not a FASB concept. It came about in, I guess, in a statement on auditing standard 62. I'm not quite sure what the clarified standard is. But it came about under 62. And 
it was out there, and you might have seen it for statutory insurance companies when they have to do it, but you know, it's not a FASB concept, it's more of an auditing concept, and you really didn't see a lot of traction. But in the late 90s, or say early 2000s, you, know, you saw some, some movement to here, especially in the, the construction industry. And anybody want to guess why we saw that traction? Probably in, in the two, early 2000s, what happened? Anybody want to guess? What's that? No? There's no wrong answer, okay? There's no wrong answer, so. Um, what happened is, how many of you have clients who have dealt with variable interest entities? Okay, and of course, if you read any financial paper, and we'll call them off-balance sheet entities, and of course, since it's around Halloween, we'll put them over here and say they're very spooky. So you shouldn't have them. I mean, the, you know, you had Enron, the SEC said these things are bad, you can't have them. And certainly in a public company, I can understand that. You know, you don't want to get things off balance sheet. Like what, you know, I actually lived in Houston at the time of Enron. I was working on a large client, not with, with Anderson. I didn't know who, you know, I moved down there from PA, I didn't know who Enron was, and I got their, you know, their names going on the new baseball stadium. You know, they were, you know, they were high flyers. Um, and you also seen it in the financial services business with the qualified special purposes uh, entity to get things off balance sheet. So from that perspective, you understood where the FASB was coming from. And it was interesting when they came out with FIN 46. At that time, I think I was living, we were living in Europe, and one of the FASB members came over to speak to what the country I was living in, to their, their, their version of the FASB. And I got to go to that meeting. And the reason they did a FIN is if you look at what the FASB does in their standard setting process, we may not always like the answer, but we understand the process. It's very transparent. Um, I, I do believe they listen to us. But with this issue, because of the loss of confidence in the market, they had to do something quick. So if you want to do something quick, you do it as an interpretation. And I don't even think it went out for comment. I think they issued the interpretation. And of course, they've since amended. But you know, everyone kind of, this is what was the driver to income tax basis. And we saw this a lot in contractors because you know, the idea that everything off balance sheet is negative is not true. I have a lot of contractors who, you know, they do it for estate planning purposes, uh, legal liability protection, captive insurance. There's a lot of legitimate reasons to do these entities. And the fact that, you know, you went away from the voting control model to this variable interest model really caught a lot of people up in the, in the watch. So a lot of people, especially in the contracting community, a lot of people decided, well, GAP isn't for me because they didn't want, well, I can do GAP, but I'm going to have to take an except for a paragraph. They didn't want that. So banks were willing to work with them. And so you saw a lot more people go to Akbo in the early 2000s. So I think that's why it's starting to lose the stigmatism that people are starting to accept it. The cash basis of accounting is also an Akboa method. You don't really see this very much. Where you do see it, is in, and where I think it's very good, is small not-for-profit entities. It, it's, it's, it's a good alternative. It's something that we, as, a, as professionals, we ought to kind of promote to these. You know, you don't want it for your larger ones, because I find most larger not-for-profits are, you know, really govern very much like a public company, but your smaller startup, you know, when they're just taking the idea off the ground, it's, it's a very good alternative. The modified cash basis. And what is the modified cash basis? Well, this is where you need to be a little careful because what you're not allowed to do is, is say you had a client that perhaps 
they were going to fill a loan covenant for some reason. You say, well, we'll put you on Akbel, we'll get modified cash. And you'd basically do gap with the exception of whatever the accounting issue that would fail them. The modified cash basis really, the rules here are, are, are a little bit opaque, but if you think what, what normally the two examples that you, you think about on modified cash is if you have fixed assets, you're going to do depreciation. And for income taxes, you're going to accrue the taxes. And you're also allowed to do other things as well as, as, well as, as long as they're within the framework, but it's not well-defined. So this is the last thing here is the AICPA framework. And I think, you know, as we mentioned, it, it's interesting that you have a client because um, being involved with the AICPA, I know they have put a lot of resources on this. And when they first came out with it, what they found is on the East Coast and the West Coast, initially, there wasn't a lot of interest. In the Midwest, maybe a place like Kansas City, okay, <laughs> that's saying, um, they, you know, there was a little bit more acceptance of it. But I do think, you know, in New York we don't see it, but I do know of other firms that, that, that are start, starting to look at it. And I think as we see, see the FASB continue to move on a few issues, people may make a determination to, to go to an ACBOA basis. And there's a reason that perhaps the framework might give you a better picture than income tax basis. Because if you think about financial statements, they have to be two things. They have to be relevant and they have to be reliable. And you don't always get that when you're following the uh, Internal Revenue Code. So, okay, well, why go to Akboa? And uh, my wife, when I put these slides together, she goes, you should not put your picture in there, but, um, you, know, you know, but, <laughs> um, why, you know, why, why Akboa? Well, here's the major advantage of Akboa. For many things, you know, as, as you all kind of acknowledge, your clients are not gap experts. You know, a matter of fact, they, there's a lot of times when, when I'm dealing with clients, they'll tell me that, you know what? And I'll say, you know, you got, you got to do this, you got to do that. And they go, we don't care. You know, what we care about is EBITDA. We care about something else. They don't really care about gap. So there's a lot of times when the client themselves and the people using them, it has to be relevant to them. So these are easier to understand, Akboa statement. The other thing is, and this has come out, um, I've seen this number in various places, it's a lot cheaper. I mean, I don't know how the market here in California is, but I've never had a client come to me and say, you know what, you're really not charging me enough, okay? <laughs> Maybe you have them out here, I've never had a client do that, but, you know, and I think... Especially coming out of the recession, people were looking to save accounting fees. So this is a way, you know, that maybe as a profession, it might be a little, I don't want to say it's self-serving, but, you know, if you're working with a client and they're, you know, they're saying, hey, you know, getting gap statements, maybe, it's, maybe a change would be appropriate. A couple of things to remember as we talk about ACBOA. And this is, first thing here is, what ACBOA really does for people is people think, well, I want disclosure relief. You know, I don't want to give all those U.S. GAAP disclosures. You know that, that great checklist that's at least 200-some pages. You're really not going to get relief from disclosure. No, you will get some things. If you're on income tax basis, obviously deferred income taxes go away. But you, don't, you won't lose your, your, uh, your FIN48. Uh, you know, you're on certain tax positions because that's in the um, revenue code. What you, kind of, what you really get is your measurement differences. Things are measured a little differently under ACBOA. That's where the savings is. That's the, the beauty of it. Um, 
What you have to do, those of you who are doing Ocbella, as you know, footnote one. Footnote one, you know, when we do an audit opinion, um, you know, we're, we're going to refer that we're on a different comp another comprehensive basis, and we're going to refer to some footnote, either one, sometimes two, and we're going to talk about the differences. So you don't have to quantify the differences from US GAAP. You just got to let everyone know that differences exist. A um, couple other things to keep in mind here is people will say, well, I went to income tax bases or cash bases. You know, I don't need to worry about going concern. I don't need to worry about, you know, I'm, I'm being sued by this guy that's really going to put me out of business. I don't need to tell anybody about that. Well, no, no, no. You really, the notes, the notes should really parallel that of, of U.S. GAAP. So while you would not record a number for a contingency, you would let the reader know that it's out there. So really where you get the relief is, is in the measurement portion of this, not so much um, from the disclosure portion. And it's important to know that as you're going through here too, and I talked about who are the users, you know, as many people moved in, in the construction industry to an income tax basis, you know, why they might have solved the VIE issue, they all of a sudden had other issues. So you gotta make sure as you're making these moves that your banker is on board with them. Because a lot of times, you know, you think about depreciation. Well, I wanna take maker's depreciation. Okay, you took maker's depreciation, guess what? You failed your covenant. So there's other unintended consequences as people migrate if you're moving from GAP to an Octoboa basis that should be considered. Let's move on and talk a little bit about the framework. And, you know, why did the AICPA come out with this? And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think the FASB for the better part of probably the mid-90s through the early 2000s, you know, their focus was convergence. We all heard that, you know, we're, we're going to IFRS. My wife... Um, works at a university in Pennsylvania. She actually runs the retail operations. And I remember years ago, she, she was coming to me and saying, um, all these vendors were coming in and they want them, you know, our accounting textbooks, they have to be IFRS compliant. What do you think? And although, you know, I've dealt with IFRS, I said, you know, maybe you ought to just slow down a little bit before you do that. But then we see the AICPA, they went out and said, hey, you got to put it on the exam. People need to know. So you had all these ideas that, hey, we're going to get this one global standard. So it was really in response to what the, the FASB was doing. And I think this was a good thing, because I think the pressure of the AICPA really focused the NASBA, the FAF, the FASB to get back to serving the general US economy. And um, you know, the AICPA came out with this framework. They came out with it pretty quick. I think it's been out for about 18 months. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to take away the complexity. Um, some people would say they wanted to go back to gap of 30 years ago. It's very much a historical cost basis, very much a disclosure light basis type of, of uh, framework. I want to talk briefly just about what the framework is and talk about the PCC. I know Jeff Mechanic will be speaking today from the FASB. He is the, um, he, you know, he deals with all the private company issues and he'll go into these in much more depth. You know, the AICPA will tell you the framework, it is a special purpose framework. It's not, it's not GAAP. It's meant to be complementary to what the FASB is doing. And the AICPA will say, 
you know, and, and I believe this being part of the AICPA and being involved in the Technical Issues Committee, that you know, they fully support what the PCC and the FASB are doing for private companies. I know as being a member of TIC, we spend a lot of time looking at those uh, PCC issues and providing input on them. So I, I do believe the AICPA is being honest. I do believe, though, they wanted to, to probably light a little bit of fire under the, uh, the feet of the standard setters. Because if you think about standard setting, why, you know, I'm very complimentary of the process, it normally takes forever. When was the last time that you saw the FASB through the ASUs issued under the PCC do so many in one year? You know, we had the Goodwill one, we had the VIE issue, we had the swap issue. And now, I think before the end of the year, we'll get a little bit of relief on certain intangible assets recognized in a business combination. So they've been certainly busy. They've only been in existence maybe 15 months, and they made quite a bit of progress. So I, I do think they're very supportive, very different. You know, if you're doing the PCC alternatives, you're still in, in compliance with GAAP. So um, certainly a lot, lot of positive developments there. Any questions about, about anything so far? Okay, let's move on on who can use the, the idea of the SMA and who can use it. Um, unfortunately, and I think this is the interesting part piece about having the FASB deal with private companies and having the AICPA develop their own framework. Um, you know, I work for a firm in New York. You know, we're in, in Midtown and you know, we're a private company. We're a top 50 firm. We have about 500 people. We're a private company. The guy that I buy my bagel every morning from on the corner of the street is also a private company. I don't think we have the same accounting issues. So perhaps, you know, what we have with the PCC and what we have with the framework, there's certainly a place for it. The framework, I think, is really geared towards owner-managed business. You know, those, those companies that... Um, entrepreneurial, um, you know, may, may only grow to a certain capacity, have no intent to tap any type of public, certainly, or private equity markets. So that, that's who the framework is, is, is really geared towards. And they're also, um, it's a stable basis. That's one thing that the AICPA is very proud of. Because as we see with what's happening with the FASB and the PCC, you know, the PCC has two jobs. They have their, one of their jobs is to look at historical gap and say, okay, where can we make modifications that make sense? Their other job is to be the advisor to, to the FAS, be on new pronouncements. So there's going to be change. We say, I said, hey, we already had four changes, or, four cha or probably by the end of the year, well, four, there'll be others, where this framework is out there. I think it came out last July. And I think every three years they may take a look at it um, but it's not going to change a whole lot. So you have, you know, for one of the things that in practice, you know, where, where do we spend a lot of resources? Where do our clients spend a lot of resources? Whenever there's a new pronouncement and they have to deal with it. So this would provide a very stable basis for uh, our clients. And it's really, uh, you know, like I said, the beauty of this is it's, it really goes back to a very simple gap method of accounting. Still a cruel basis, but a lot more on um, historical costs and other things. The other thing that the, the AICPA is pretty proud about this is that we talk about the disclosure, disclosure overload. 
you still have that with Akboa because you got to follow the gap. You know, you gotta, if Gap has it, you have to kind of follow it. Now, the FASB does have a project to look at disclosures, but the AICPA, what they've done, and they probably copied this from the IFRS for SMEs. You know, they have very simplified disclosures. So it's, you know, you don't need a page and a half about a fair value footnote when you only had maybe one security and it's actively traded. So um, it's certainly a lot simpler from a disclosure perspective, a lot of positives there. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the, go ahead. Was there a question? No? Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the, the key principles here. If, if I ask people about fair value as defined by the FASB under 820 and how many people love fair value, who here would raise their hand besides me? Anybody raising their hand? Nobody? I'm all alone? No, okay. One of the things we have with the AICPA is they have the concept of market value. Now, you look at the FASB and their definition of fair value, and, and I will tell you this, because um, I say this at my TIC meetings, I say it at my state society meetings. In New York, we have a reviewers group meeting, so I'm consistent. I could be consistently wrong, but I'm consistent. I love fair value. I think fair value for financial assets and liabilities makes a lot of sense. I also think, and um, there was a joke made about me being a former PCOB inspector, um, and I had to laugh at that because I think, you know, the, the certainly I think PCOB does a lot of good, but I think the regulators in some ways have ruined fair value. If you followed it when it first came out, the idea is, well, what's fair value? You know, you're going to a market participant approach, so it's what does a market think and not what, you know, not what you think internally, and it's supposed to be the best estimate in the range. Okay, pretty simple concept. But because of the financial crisis, I think what you saw with regulators, and when I say regulators, it's not just the PCOB, but others. You know, it was supposed to be an estimate, and it seems like they were trying to solve for pi, you know, and have clients solve for pi, and that's really not what it was meant. So I understand the concepts and business combinations about why fair value may not work for non-financial assets and liabilities, but overall it works well. Well, a lot of people have a hard time dealing with it because... You know, if you had a client that did a business combination, maybe, you know, they don't normally do a lot of acquisitions. Maybe they do one every seven years. You know, post the new definition of fair value, that became a whole lot more expensive, not only from an audit perspective, because we have to get our own experts, but most of our clients, as, as you kind of acknowledge, well, they rely on you. You know, you really can't do the valuation. We're not value, you know, we're not valuation specialists. So they had to spend a whole lot more money, so it kind of didn't make sense. So what the AICPA went out and did, they said, you know what, we're going to go back to what we think is a more traditional approach. And, you know, it's this idea of, you know, what would you pay for it between two, a willing buyer and a willing, and a willing seller in a non-forced transaction? And they also decreased the use of it. So if you have securities held for sale, level one, where you can go to uh, Wall Street Journal or, or Bloomberg, you know, you can record that at fair value. A little bit in business combinations, but they really tried to simplify it for people. They wanted to make it a lot easier. So I think that really um, could be something that, that clients would be interested in. You know, with the PCC, they've recently, you know, the FASB will be voting on this intangible asset issue. 
you know, they came out with the first ASUs pretty quickly, but there was a lot of hand-wringing on this last one because what they're really going to do, and Jeff will talk about that, is that they're not going to recognize non-competes and, and customer-related, but you still have to take all the other intangibles and run them through this, frame, this FASB definition of fair value, which is still quite costly. So if you have a client that may, you know, may do an acquisition, maybe they're an insurance broker, and every now and then they go out every five years, they know someone's selling their, their book, they go out, they buy it. Um, you know, this might be a framework that might be more appropriate for that. The other uh, thing that the AICPA did, and, you know, I will tell you, I don't know, it's interesting, the whole idea of income taxes. You know, they really made it, they gave you a choice here. If you want to recognize deferred income taxes, go ahead. If you don't, you can make this policy election, and you can use the taxes payable method. And if I ask, how many of you deal with C-Corps? C-Corp audits, okay. How many of your clients can do the deferred tax accrual in the footnote? <laughs> See, where, where's the show of hands again? Okay, exactly. And you know, it's kind of amazing is, if you think about this, even the big companies back when Sarbanes came out, think about all the um, 404 deficiencies that were in this area. How many firms, I'm sure you all know firms that, hey, they actually set up a practice just to deal with the 109 accruals for public companies. So again, more simplification um, out there. The other thing that's kind of interesting, and I will give them kudos for this, is the second bullet point. There's no evaluation of uncertain tax positions. You know, um, and I find this interesting because if you think about how that came about, the FASB for that is, you remember back when I think you know, some of the large firms were selling the tax shelters and things like that and they um, were proprietary products. And so now we have this whole FIN48 model and you know, the AICPA said, you know what? We can use a, a FAS5 model for that. You know, we don't need to go through this whole more likely than not, gather all the positions. And I think this is, might be um, of interest because, you know, the PCC has looked at this in, issue about providing relief. And I think, you know, working with the FASB, they've kind of said, you know what, it might be complex, but we're not going to really move on it. So if you have clients that may have this issue, you know, I always call the FIN 48 uh, or the, the 48 footnote, you know, the roadmap for the IRS. Um, so, you know, this is another thing that I think the AICPA has provided. Certainly, I think in owner-managed businesses where the idea is, you know, they're not trying to, you know, they're not being tax cheats. Are they being aggressive within the code and taking some positions? Yes. So I think that could certainly be a useful option. The other thing here that the AICPA has in, or does not have in its framework, I keep saying has when they don't have it, is a concept of other comprehensive income. If I looked out here and said, could someone please define other comprehensive income for me, who would want to volunteer? When I was at the large firm back when they first came out with this concept, one of our head technical guys used to joke, um, he goes, you know, if we don't know where to put the credit on something, just throw it in an OCI. He goes, the FASB doesn't know what it is either. But, you know, I certainly think we all know what the concept is. You know, you got some financial instruments, you want to put them up value increases on the balance sheet. You don't want to take it through the P&L. So I, I jest about that, but they really did away with the idea. You know, and certainly with some of the statements, you know, that, you know, that came out, you know, do you do the two, one statement approach or the two statement approach? Um, I, you know, and to be honest, 
private companies don't really care about. I don't think it's really that important to them. The other thing where I think the AICPA has moved in a positive direction is in the area of impairment. Um, this is something I've always done a lot of. For some reason, I don't know, I don't know if this is good or bad, but my whole career has kind of been built around doing impairments. I don't know why. Um, and I always look at the U.S. model of how we do an impairment compared to the IASB, and I think it's great. Economically, if you follow the, you know, accounting is supposed to reflect the economics. It's going to get you to the right answer. You know, we do the step one, step two, hypothetical purchase price, all that. You get to a beautiful answer. The problem with that, nobody can do it internally. As a CPA, I can't do it. Most my clients can't do it. I can get higher valuation people to do it, but my clients would rather not see their money spent on something that they see little value. How many of you have clients who can go to the bank and borrow against goodwill? Nobody, okay? Um, I used to deal with, at my, um, in my former life, I had a person who ran our fraud department, and he always laughed at the, the FASB on some of these things. He goes, you know, you spend all this time the standard savers doing things like goodwill and debt equity issues and things like that. And he goes, you know, you know, what's the definition of goodwill? And I'd give him the gap definition. He goes, well, it's really capitalized stupidity. He goes, if you go buy a car, would you pay more than what it's worth? But so <laughs> no one would. So what they've done here is they've sort of said, you know what, we're not going to worry um, about impairment. You know, they're going to do, every, of course, everything, the goodwill here is under their method is depreciated, uh, intangibles are amortized, so you would just adjust the depreciation and amortization to there. Uh, another thing that the AICPA has said, and I don't know how important this will be going forward, I think when they first wrote the standard, I think this was a selling point for them, is the idea when it comes to the lease accounting, they said, you know what, we're going to leave lease accounting in U.S. GAAP, the FASFR 13 model, as is. Simplify it a little bit, but we're going to leave it as is. And how many of you are following or have followed the lease accounting? Okay, got a, a few people. Um, okay. I, and I think this was a good move in the beginning, because if you read the first exposure draft that they came out, I guess, in 2010 on lease accounting, you know, convergence project, I thought it got to the right economic answer, you know, because it talked about variability and payments, variability and time frame. And I was actually uh, just telling someone from the FASB that the other day. I thought it was you know, a good model. And then he looked at me and goes, yeah, but no one knew how to do it. So, but the FASB now is moving to a model that I think is much more simple. You know, so hopefully we'll get to see the final standard out next year. But, you know, so I don't know how big this will be. But you still will, under the FASB approach, take your operating leases and put them on the balance sheet. You know, so you have the liability and you have the asset, where under the AICPA approach, they'll still be off balance sheet. So it still may have some um, positives for uh, companies. Talk a little bit about revenue recognition. Certainly, I think we're all aware that um, after a very long time, and certainly um, the, the concept of revenue recognition and the new standards out. Now, for private companies, the new standard's really not effective to 2017, I believe. The AICPA has basically said, you know, and I, you know, I kind of often wonder why the FASB thought they had a fixed revenue recognition. I mean, and I, and I know it was very industry-based, 
But I think we kind of understood it. You know, we had the four main criteria. We had our industry guidance under, uh, you know, construction, real estate, um, other areas. It kind of worked. I didn't think it was broken. But, you know, because we had hundreds of uh, different literature on it and the ISB only had two, I guess they decided they needed to work together. And so, you know, as, as you've looked, I don't think, as, I, as I've read the new standard on RevRec, I don't think it changes a whole lot, except in certain industries. I think, um, you know, Jeff will talk about three industries, so I won't steal his thunder. But, you know, certainly in some technology it will. And certainly I think in real estate it's going to have an impact. But by and large, it really doesn't affect private companies um, too much. Where it does affect, and I think it's a sleeper issue, is the whole idea of disclosure. If I asked you to tell me what's your usual client's accounting policy footnote on RevRec, it's probably three sentences, right? Four sentences on a good day. Not, not, very, not very long, though, right? Not very descriptive. And it's kind of funny, because one of the things that I like to do in, in the QR function is I always will read the footnote, and then I go out to the website, and I read what the company says they do. And, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll, I love telling our engagement teams this, and they, they know it by now because I've been there a while. But I'm like, you know, our footnote says they do this. When I read what, how they try to get customers, it says they do this. Like, can someone reconcile this? Because there are a lot of issues um, out there in revenue. You know, we have gross first net and other issues. But where it's really going to change is, and I've had a, um, on one of the state boards I'm on, uh, a person took a simple revenue footnote. And it might have been, maybe it was, you know, they had multiple elements. It might have been maybe two paragraphs. There's a lot more disclosure in the new standards. No, there is some relief, but it's really, um, there'll be a lot more disclosure that your clients will have to put in. So that's really a sleeper issue. Um, you know, I, I know people always kind of claim the competitive harm. I don't know if that's true. But certainly, this is where the AICPA, they're still under the same basic four criteria. So that might be something to keep in mind. Let's talk a little bit. Does anyone have any questions about the framework before we move on? So um, with FRF for SMEs, you can opt back and forth between GAAP and the alternative for SMEs and still be under that framework. So in other words, where there's an option, here I choose FRF for SME. But for this, I choose GAP. But I still want to be under the FRS for SME framework. Well, I... I, I, I okay. So, basically, can you sort of go a la... or uh, choose off a menu? If you're in FRF for SMEs, can you say, for VIEs, I want this, but for leases, I want to use GAP? And still be under FRS for SME? Or do you have... I'm assuming you would do that and you have to disclose which your accounting policy is for each. Is that how you do it? Uh, you, you know, you probably, again, this is another comprehensive basis. So you would have, you know, they do have guidance on, on most areas. So if you were going to away from that, you, you probably could do it, but it would have to be an except for in the opinion. Now, I think now you're going vice versa then. So now you're except for going to Gap. <laughs> yeah, but, sort of and that's the thing, though. Ironic the, in a way. It is ironic, but you know, when, you're, when we talk about the basis of accounting, when you adopt the, the framework here, and there, I didn't talk about some of the rules on the initial year of adoption, um, you know, you basically have said goodbye to GAP. 
you know, and you're under this framework. No, there is a lot more judgment, and I didn't talk about that. There's a lot more judgment because what the AICPA said is they did not believe for a private company who would use this framework, and if the, the people who use the financial statements, um, that comparability was a driving factor. So they realized that two entities could have the exact fact pattern and for some reason legitimately come to a different answer. You can see that probably on certain contingencies and, and things like that. But no, it would be once you're under this, this framework, this becomes your gap. So the other one um, has to do with, um, would, do you have a feel for what the characteristics are for the Midwest that is um, having them seem to accept and start to implement FRS for SMEs more than maybe the rest of the country? You, you know, it's funny. I, I know Bob Dorak, who was a former AICPA manager on this. Um, I think the characteristics, you know, is just that you know, they've historically accepted more Akbella basis financial statements. You know, probably, you know, much smaller. You know, and I don't know, you know, if you cut out Chicago, um, I, don't know, I don't know what would happen. Um, but I think a lot of it is, you know, they have a lot more community banks. So I think they're smaller loans, you know, collateral-based lending type of situations. Um, you know, when I'm on TIC a lot, we have people from, uh, in like Green Bay and other places, and they actually mention that they do a lot of income debt. So I think it's just that they, the lending base is different, and they're not, you know, there's not the private equity and alternative investment markets available. We, we do um, financial statements for our clients because the banks require gap basis financial. So have you, do you know if the banks are um, open to these things or have they talked about having small size business, privately held business to go towards the um, FRF basis instead of gap? That's mainly why we are hesitant to convert is mainly because of the, the bank requirements. You know, and, and I think um, on this slide here, I think that this is really, I kind of alluded to in the beginning, um, when the AICPA came out with this, this was not without controversy. You know, the NASBA had released a letter uh, to the AICPA, and I think they actually argued under some constitutional argument that the AICPA didn't have this um, authority to do this. And then, as I said, the RMA released a letter kind of chastising it. And I think people thought, you know, they were trying to, I guess, circumvent what the FASB and the PCC w were doing. And I don't think that was really the intent. I think, um, so I think originally the banking community may, may have misunderstood this. I know RMA in their newsletter originally had, had made some comments that I think they now understand it better and more willing to accept. I think where the AICPA has done a great job is they've kind of worked with, they've gone to a lot of state, state, state associations, explained it, and they're trying to work a lot more directly with banks and, and sort of, you know, let people really just educate people. I think um, as we move away, people will see that this may be a very good alternative because, as I mentioned before, why income tax base is certainly an acceptable alternative this may really pr provide a more um, true picture of how an entity is performing because of some of the issues within income tax basis or cash basis. So, um, you know, I would encourage, you, you can't make the move unless your banker buys into it. So if your client's thinking about it, I would encourage your, your client and, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, 
being part of those discussions about, you know, you're still going to do the same auditing procedures. You know, you're still going to be able to audit or review or compile if necessary. But I think there's still a lot of education to be done. And I, I do think this makes sense. As I said, you know, when we talk about private companies, you know, Enterprise Rent-A-Car is a private company. And like I said, the guy I buy a bagel from every week or every day in the morning, he's a private company. So there's this big scope. I do think there's a place for it in the marketplace. It's interesting when I'm at the tick meetings, people will argue, well, they want simplification. They want simplification. Well, if you look at the framework that Jeff will talk about today, you really, it has to be not only simple, but it has to be relevant. You know, we can't make everything simple. So, you know, if you keep arguing for simplification, maybe it's not, gap may not be the issue. Maybe your client doesn't have the right framework. Move into something that works for them. You know, save them money and keep your clients happy. I think it's a win-win. Certainly make sure the debt covenants, if your clients move to this, that they are adjusted, that you don't get caught up in having gap covenants. So, any other questions? Okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was it's quite interesting to watch. And, you know, there's a, a thought out there, and I, I've said this earlier, that, you know, competition is good. I mean, you know, the FASB came out with, uh, with a lot of alternatives right off the bat with the PCC. And, you know, I, I, as I go around and, and talk to people, they really believe that maybe the AICPA putting this out kind of, you know, was that pushing hand in, in the back to keep moving forward. Um, I'm not going to read through this slide. AICPA has some great resources out there, some fabulous resources if, if you're interested that I would encourage you to, um, to go out. You can educate your clients. It's 250 pages, um, the whole standard. So it's really, it's easy reading. If you think about, if you ever read like the debt equity books from any of the big four firms, they're 600 pages. So you're doing a third. So, I mean, this is a good thing. Another thing I just want to point out and, um, is the AICP has this comparison of this to other basis of accounting. It's, a, it's free. It's out on the AICP website. Very good. Um, you know, if your clients want to go to another basis, this can basically take them down uh, the pathway. Let's move on, and we're going to talk a little bit about the IFRS for SMEs. And certainly, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the ISB, they basically set gap for, for their issuance community, and then you have, uh, they decide we need to do something for the private entities. Now, unfortunately, or the fortunately, I'll tell you, this was actually, the person who did this project actually was an American who was on the ISB. You know, it was his brainchild, and he, he took it through and came out with it. Um, I was involved, I said, with the implementation group, um, the ISB does a great job. If you go out and, and look at their website, they'll tell you this is used in like 69, 71 countries. Um, what I found is I haven't found the traction in the U.S. I don't know if I asked if anybody uses this here. Um, like I said, I had two clients who used it in my, in my tenure. Where the traction comes from, though, is other countries that may not have developed standard setters. So it would be interesting getting on these calls um, you know, we had Americans, Germans, and everyone else, and it would be like, you know, if you go to like some of the West Africa countries, um, they were very interested because, you know, they didn't have the developed standard setter. So this is something out there. This, if your client wanted to go to this, this is not ACBOA. As you know, IFRS is not ACBOA. The, the AICPA board had decided that this would not be ACBOA either. Um, 
so you wouldn't have to use the you know, other comprehensive basis of accounting type of language in, in, in your reports. Um, who would use this? Basically, the people who are going to use this are, and this is what I found, is that if you have a foreign parent, you know, foreign investors, you know, the situations I've seen, you know, they, they were um, Mediterranean companies, uh, Middle Eastern companies that had an investment in the U.S. and they wanted to use this, this for, for their subsidiary accounting. Um, it is out there. I want people to know about it. it it's, there's some things about it that are kind of interesting. I would tell you it's probably because it's a scaled-down version of IFRS. It probably provides a little bit more guidance than what the framework does. Again, it's also about 250 pages. So I think whenever you're, if you ever want to write a standard for private en entities, don't go over the 250-page threshold. That seems to be um, an unwritten rule there. A couple things I want people to know about this um, that I think is important, uh, maybe if, if you were thinking about it, and just basically just about IFRS in general, is there's some, there are some good points to it. Um, I want to point out two of them. Is you know, the goodwill and indefinite lives, you know, that's certainly an intangible. Uh, once again, it's amortized, similar to the framework, similar to what we have in um, the ASU on, on, on goodwill under GAAP. It was kind of interesting because if you follow the developments from the PCC, a lot of people wanted it to amortize goodwill over 15 years. Why do they want to go 15 years? What, how, how long do you amortize goodwill for tax purposes? 15 years. So you kill two birds with one stone, but the FASB kind of pushed back on that and said, no, we understand it's a wasting asset, but we're not here to you know, fix all tax differences. So because this had 10 years, there was actually a discussion, well, if the IFRS for SMEs uses 10 years, you know, it's an established basis, let's use 10 years. So that, that's certainly something to keep in mind. The other thing um, that you, you see also on here is the idea of depreciation on a component basis. Um, you know, as you know, even under full IFRS, this is a concept that people like. You know, they think it's great. You know, if you're, you know I, like I say, I do a lot of real estate, so people say, you know, they find it, I guess, interesting from a cost sake perspective as well, that, hey, let's get all this component and how great it is. What they don't realize is it becomes a bookkeeping nightmare. I mean, really it is. I mean, so, I mean, you know, be careful what you wish for. But these are some of, some of the differences here I want you to understand about U.S. GAAP. If, you know, because certainly I always look at the economies or the, the places where you might want people to use a non-U.S. framework. You're going to find them really, you know, the East Coast, New York, Boston, Miami, and you're going to find them in California. I mean, where, where's the capital flow? So I want you to be aware of, of a few of the things here. Um, the other thing is about IFRS is, you know, they allow you, you know, in U.S. GAAP, we take a write down and we're done. We get a new basis. If you go to IFRS or IFRS for SMEs, you can write something down, but then you can write it back up. So there's a little bit more to this, and it's certainly a, a different concept, um, but certainly it does have a place. As I said, the two clients that I did, that I, that I, that I actually had to review statements for, one was, you know, out of San Diego and one was out of New York. So um, certainly you may have, you know, this is another option. You want to be able to give people their, their full options here. Um, the resources for this, just like the AICPA, they have their resources on their website have training modules on them. They're actually very good, as are the AICPA um, 
resources as well. Okay, with that, any final questions or thoughts on that? Okay. Okay, I appreciate everyone's um, attention. And, uh, you know, I guess to maybe get a positive uh, response, I'll say, go Giants. There you go. <laughs>